We got two massive pieces of news in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into the former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. One of these is just broken, and it's about this guy who's not exactly a household name. This is Mike Roman. He was the director of Election Day operations for Trump's 2020 campaign. You might know him as the guy who on January 6th tried to physically deliver certificates of the fake electors from Trump's fake elector scheme to Vice President Mike Pence. And that act, being the bag man trying to deliver the fake electors on January 6th to stop the certification of the 2020 election, that is actually a pretty good encapsulation of his larger role in all of this. You see, after the election, there wasn't all that much to do for Trump's director of Election Day operations. So Mike Roman shifted to a new gig. He acted as the go-between, the vote whipper of sorts, doing the legwork to get state-level officials on board with Trump's fake elector plan. Now, he wasn't the legal mastermind behind the plan. He wasn't the brains of the operation. He was the legs of the operation. Yesterday, Mr. Roman's deputy in that position, this guy, was spotted meeting with special counsel Jack Smith's grand jury. Tonight, the New York Times is out with a massive scoop that Mike Roman himself is in talks to cooperate with Jack Smith's investigation. A person familiar with the matter tells the New York Times tonight that Mr. Roman is negotiating a proffer agreement. That's a trade of what is likely some level of legal immunity for testimony. And that is huge, gigantic news all on its own. But it really starts to paint a picture when you combine it with the other major piece of news that broke about this investigation tonight. And in that second story is about these guys. Not to be rude, but these guys are not exactly household names either. This is the chairman of the Republican Party of Nevada, Michael McDonald, and the Nevada Republican Party official Jim DeGraffenreid. These were two of Donald Trump's fake electors in Nevada. Now, we already knew that last week these two guys had been spotted going in to testify before Jack Smith's grand jury. But tonight, CNN reports Jack Smith gave both of these guys limited immunity in exchange for their testimony. Uh, NBC has not independently confirmed that reporting. Now, I know what you're thinking. What could the special counsel possibly get from these guys that we haven't gotten from years of public reporting and from the extensive January 6th investigation conducted by the House of Representatives? And I'm so glad you asked. The House committee, the January 6th committee, interviewed both of these Nevada fake electors on February 24th of last year. Now, from the schedule, it looks like one was interviewed before lunch and the other one was after lunch, back to back, lunch in between. The committee got nothing from these guys. DeGraffenreid pleaded the fifth more than 190 times. McDonald pleaded the fifth more than 270 times. I'm going to read you a little of this. Question. What did you mean when you said that President Trump, Mark Meadows, and Mr. Giuliani, quote, went want full attack mode? McDonald. Based on the advice of my attorney, I'll be invoking my Fifth Amendment privilege. Question. With respect to the words, extremely problematic, did you understand that to mean that it would be unlawful or problematic for some other reason? De Graffenried, under advice of counsel, I assert the prior privilege, end quote, meaning he pleaded the fifth. Their sworn testimonies before the House January 6th committee went on and on like that for hours. Mike Roman testified to the committee in August. He pleaded the fifth more than 130 times. Now, remember, this guy was Trump's director of Election Day operations. 
So make sure you understand that director of election day operations. So check out how he answered this question. Quote, where were you, Mr. Roman, on election day? Roman, the fifth. He pleaded the fifth to where he was on election day when you're the director of election day operations. I know the investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election can be maddening because so much of it happened out there in the open. But drawing the connective tissue between everything that happened after the 2020 election and Trump himself in a way that is provable and prosecutable in a court of law is actually a tall order. By offering these guys at the center of the fake elector plot limited immunity in exchange for their testimony, it seems like Jack Smith is trying to connect the dots. And believe it or not, we're not done. We got a couple of major developments out of Jack Smith's other case tonight. You know, the other one, the indictment of Donald Trump and his aide, Walton Nauta, over their handling of classified documents at Trump's beach club, Mar-a-Lago. The judge in that case, the Trump appointee, Aileen Cannon, had set a trial date for mid-August, a date every legal expert has expected to slide. Tonight, in a brand new filing from special counsel Jack Smith, the prosecution is requesting a later date, December, uh, December 11th, and setting forth a new schedule for pretrial hearings. In the filing, prosecutors say, quote, defense counsel confirmed they do not oppose an adjournment of the current trial date and request a status hearing with the court to address the schedule in this action. Defense counsel anticipate filing an opposition to this motion, addressing their objections to the government's proposed dates, end quote. In a separate filing, the prosecution, the government, reveals that it has turned over a list of witnesses to the defense who they argue should not be allowed to speak to Trump except through counsel. And in a footnote, the prosecution apparently hints at how many witnesses that could be. It says the defense, quote, have authorized government counsel to represent the following. The defense reserves the right to object to the special condition about witnesses and the manner in which it was implemented by the government by providing a list of 84 witnesses in purported compliance with this court's order. End quote. 84 witnesses. Joining us now, Lisa Rubin, former litigator and MSNBC legal analyst, and Harry Littman, former United States attorney and senior legal affairs columnist for the L.A. Times. Thank you both for being here. It's great to see you both. Harry, it's always good to see you. Uh, Lisa, you and I spend a lot of our days together these days with you explaining these things to me. Harry, let's just start with the the, the limited immunity that the two guys in Nevada got, the discussion that, that Mike Roman is having. Uh, obviously, the idea of giving these guys some immunity from prosecution on the basis of their own testimony is because we care less about these guys if there is some effort to get to the the center of the operation, the brains of the operation, the big fish or Donald Trump himself. It's true. We care less about them, but no one, no prosecutor wants to give out immunity like M&Ms. But these guys, and one of them in particular, McDonald, purportedly discussed things directly with the president. And at a minimum, where you saw him taking the fifth, was he, he is in communication uh, potentially with Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, a real inner circle. So this represents the move from pretty patently provable charges against the state electors themselves to potentially the inner circle. And that's what you were talking about up front with Rowan and Brown. And one quick point on that, it's textbook prosecutorial move. Rowan's the deputy. He, excuse me, Brown is. He comes in and testifies Thursday. I think he got immunity. And Brown is like, gulp, I better come in. Rowan, excuse me, is like, gulp, I better come in now because he's going to inculpate me. And he, that what the 
he's coming in to do is proper. That is to tell the government, here's what I'll say if you let me. And the government, based on that, could give him immunity as well. So that's a real leverage up the line and into the Washington, D.C. part of the false electors plan. So, Lisa, the, 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 the Mike Roman part of this is, is interesting because one wonders what Jack Smith needs to do or anybody else needs to do, given, as we say, that we've reported this out. It's been before the January 6th committee, and today was the perfect example. Mike Roman pleaded the fifth about where he was on, on Election Day. Right. At this point, that means Congress was limited in what it can get out of these people in a way that Jack Smith and a grand jury is not limited, because if you lie to a grand jury, uh, you're in trouble. But can they is there an equivalent? Can, can 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 these guys just do the same thing, plead the fifth to the grand jury? Or is that the point of these negotiations? The whole point of these negotiations is so that they don't do that and that they can provide information that's helpful to the investigation. When Mike Roman was before the January 6th committee, not only did he refuse to answer where he was on Election Day, but he refused to answer some much more central questions, including whether or not he ever spoke to President Trump directly about the fake electors scheme. My guess is those are the sorts of questions that are of central importance to Jack Smith and his investigators when they are looking increasingly at this fake electors scheme and the involvement of central Trump world figures therein, including and up to former President Trump alley. Uh, Harry, let's look at the uh, Mar-a-Lago criminal case. Is there anything that catches your eye uh, in these filings, that number of 84 witnesses? I mean, obviously, for me, that's interesting. But what caught your eye about the delay in the uh, in the trial and the, the, the back and forth that we were reading a bit about? Right. The 84 is just another reminder that we, we, we see little rocks, but they're mountains that that Smith has of evidence. But the, it looks like a delay. I, I think it's actually a, an attempt to hold the line. The main thing that, that Trump can use to delay is this classified information uh, rigmarole. And what Smith is clearly saying and, and setting a status conference to have is he can do it all, everything that needs to be done, and we can still go to trial December. They could that could move to January, February, March. We're well in advance of the worrisome date of, say, end of the summer or even worse. So this is actually the government uh, drawing an, a realistic line of saying we can do it by then. And in particular, saying let's get on top of this classified stuff now, because that is the one everything else has to come anyway. And fairly soon, that is the one uh, motion they can bring that could they'll they could really try to leverage to eat up months and months of time. At least, of course, this is what you do. You go through these uh, these documents and you figure out the stuff that, that looks like legalese to me. But that's really important. What caught your eye? The thing that caught my eye, Ali, is there's a declaration from Jay Brett, who is an official at the Department of Justice and National Security Division, now detailed to the special counsel. And one of the things he says in his filing is that not all of the defense counsel have even applied for interim security clearances here. That's a translation He's basically saying, if there's a delay here, it's not on us. It's on them. We've told them we'll turn around interim security clearances for them so they can have classified stuff within 24 to 48 hours. We haven't even received all of their applications yet. And that's a clear signal to the judge. If this thing is going to drag on, it won't be on the Department of Justice's watch. We're going to do everything and anything we can in order to try this case fairly and with enough procedure for Donald Trump and his lawyers. But at the same time, we're not going to drag our feet to prevent him from having a speedy trial as the law entitles him to.
Uh, Harry, I want to talk to you about the location of this trial, Fort Pierce, Florida. There were four federal court options in uh, in the Southern District of Florida. This is Eileen Cannon's home court. I don't know what these things mean. Does it, is it important that it's in her home court? It happens to be the Trumpiest of all the court regions from which to pull a, uh, a jury. But what does that mean to you? It means exactly what it means exactly that it maximizes the chances of some. I don't I don't think anyone sees a real uh, chance of a an acquittal for him, but it maximizes the chance of a hung jury, somebody being a holdout, which he would certainly spin as a victory. And of course, it goes with Judge Cannon herself, who it's pretty clear now is not going to heed the calls to recuse as she might have under the law. So we're we're in there for the duration. Uh, thanks to both of you. We appreciate your analysis. Harry Littman and Lisa Rubin, we appreciate you making the time tonight. All right, still ahead tonight, we're going to take a look at the horrific realities that many across this country have had to endure in the years since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, upending decades of abortion rights for millions of those who are of childbearing age and what it could mean for millions more in the years to come. But next, we've been keeping an eye on reports out of Russia of a standoff between the leader of Russia's top paramilitary mercenary group and leaders of the Russian government as Russia's war in Ukraine enters uncharted territory. I'll be joined by NBC News chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel about what's happening right now in Russia overnight. Stay with us. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Got major breaking news out of Russia at this hour. The volatile chief of the Wagner paramilitary group, this guy, Yevgeny Prigozhin, once a Putin ally, claims that he has left Ukraine at the head of a column of troops and has crossed into Russia in some sort of a challenge to the Russian defense minister with whom he's been waging a war of words since the outset of the Russian invasion of Russia of Ukraine last year. Prigozhin, who was hired by Russian President Vladimir Putin last year to mobilize Wagner mercenaries to Ukraine, posted a message on social media this afternoon accusing Russia's Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, of pushing Putin to invade Ukraine under, quote, false pretenses. He also accused the Russian military of providing Putin with inaccurate information about the status of the war and claimed that Russia is, in fact, losing ground on the battlefield. Not long after posting that message at around 9 p.m. local time, Prigozhin posted another message blaming the Russian military for carrying out an alleged attack against his troops, killing, quote, a huge amount of his own forces in Ukraine. Now, this is something that Russia has since denied. Prigozhin vowed to retaliate, which prompted Russian officials to open a criminal case against him. 
Okay, so just understand this for a second. This means that the head of the most effective part of Russia's ground war in Ukraine, without whom Russia would not have been where they are today, could now soon be under arrest in his own country, which is where he claims to be right now. It's hard to make sense of this. Russian military officials have taken to national television to accuse accuse Prigozhin of trying to stage a coup. Now, whether or not his threat has any teeth, we, we just don't know. But the information we're receiving from reporters inside Russia is that the country and the military are right now at this hour on high alert. Videos circulating widely on social media and shared by the Moscow Times showed armored vehicles being deployed in Moscow and near the front line in Ukraine, where Prigozhin's fighters are gathered. Medusa, an investigative outlet critical of Putin, is also reporting that Russia's domestic intelligence service is asking Wagner fighters not to obey Prigozhin's criminal and treacherous orders and to take steps to detain him. Other Russian generals, like the one seen here, seated next to a rifle, are appealing to fighters to ignore the calls for rebellion. Prigozhin attempted to clarify today, by the way, that he's not attempting a coup. But government officials in Ukraine are saying that a column of Wagner soldiers have now passed checkpoints in the direction of Moscow. And a new audio posted by Prigozhin says his fighters are now inside Russia. There's a lot here. And we have not confirmed any of this information independently. We've just gathered it for you now and we'll let you know what we do and when we can confirm it. But the impact and the fear that this is generating not just inside Russia, but around the world is palpable. Russian stocks are now down more than three percent in uh, after hours trading. And the, the, the banners running at the bottom of the 24 hour Russian state television channel say that the statements and the actions of Prigozhin amount to a call for an armed civil conflict. It is too early to predict how or if this is going to have an impact on the war in Ukraine. But for months now, Prigozhin's mercenary forces, Wagner Group, have played a key role in this battle, taking control at times of the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut in the east, where the longest and bloodiest battle of the war has taken place. Joining us now is NBC News chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel. Uh, Richard, thank you for joining us. I know you're in Taipei right now, but I need to talk to you about this because you understand all of this. The war, uh, Sergei Prigozhin and the Wagner Group's role in this whole thing. What, in your estimation, is happening right now? So this is a long brewing conflict. And as you said, the details of what's happening right at this moment are a little bit unclear. Uh, But if you listen to multiple sources coming out of the uh, Russian officials, out of Russian media, uh, these direct appeals by Russian generals, it appears that this internal strife that has been brewing for a long time is now spilling over into a potential armed conflict. So first of all, a little bit, who is Yevgeny Prigozhin? Yevgeny Prigozhin is a Kremlin insider. He's very close to Vladimir Putin, uh, or at least was very close to Vladimir Putin. He was sometimes described as Putin's chef. Uh, it's not clear that he actually ever cooked for uh, for Putin. He was more of a caterer, but he goes back to the inner circle days when Putin was rising to power in St. Petersburg. But he has moved well beyond the, the catering business. Since at least 2014, he has established this Wagner Group. He established a private mercenary army. And the reason he was able to establish this 
according to members that uh, of Wagner that I've spoken to, former members. Uh, I've traveled to, to several different countries where Wagner has operations, including uh, in the Central African Republic. Uh, spent spent quite a bit of time uh, focusing on, on this subject. So, uh, in 2014, roughly, Wagner. Uh, began to have an armed force initially in Ukraine because there was a need. Uh, there was a need because uh, the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, wanted to keep fighting in that country. This was just around the time and just after the time of the takeover of Crimea. But he wanted to do it in a way that was off the books, in a way that you could use expendable fighters that didn't really uh, impact the population. So uh, Wagner, Evgeny Prigozhin, raised his hand, said, I have an army. Uh, I can create an army. I can use former veterans. I can use criminals. I can use people that the Russian population won't really miss if they die on the battlefield. And I can provide this auxiliary force to, to Russia. It was accepted. Prigozhin uh, formed Wagner Group all the way back in uh, in 2014. It was small. It was secretive. Then it started to grow. When uh, Vladimir Putin decided to back up Bashar al-Assad in Syria, another military intervention that Putin wanted to have off the books, a military campaign that didn't require troop call-ups that wouldn't impact the the Russian population in a uh, an emotional or physical way, Prigozhin stepped in. Since then, his operations have continued to grow. He expanded into Africa, which is a, a way for, for the operation to 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 raise money. They they, they extract a lot of uh, gold illegally, a lot of blood diamonds from places like the Central African Republic. We had a story on that uh, a few weeks ago. Once they started fighting on multiple fronts uh, and were able to generate their own revenue stream, Prigozhin established his own power base. He became a force to reckon with inside Russia. And then with this latest war in Ukraine that began about a year and a half ago, Prigozhin entered in a major way. Wagner expanded uh, exponentially. Uh, it, it went from a small secretive force operating in little known conflicts that the Russian people weren't talking about to the main war effort, which is the war in Ukraine. And once his fighters started to engage in combat, in some cases performed better than the regular army, then a rivalry began. A rivalry that, uh, that, that at times has been extremely tense because Prigozhin uh, has for months now been accusing the, uh, the, the defense establishment, particularly the defense ministry, of undermining his forces. And he has accused uh, the, the defense minister, Shoigu in Russia specifically, of treating him like a rival, treat, treating him like an enemy, of not giving his forces uh, the ammunition that they need. Prigozhin at times has stood in front of the bodies of his men who died in the, in the city of Bahmut and said, these men died because the Russian military establishment isn't giving them what they need, is treating like, them like an enemy. What we saw apparently over the last 24 hours was a whole new level of escalation. What Prigozhin is, is, is saying is that Russian forces deliberately attacked 
attacked a group of Wagner fighters who were, uh, who were camped in the forest and killed a large number of them. Again, no clear verification, but what does seem clear is that these tensions have, have escalated to, a, to an entirely different level, a new category. And then what Prigozhin allegedly said in these, in these audio recordings that are difficult to verify was that he is now so furious, so livid, that he is taking his men, he's taking tens of thousands of them, and he's going to rectify the situation himself by marching toward Moscow, marching toward the city of Rostov. He says it's not a coup, but that he wants to make sure that the people responsible for now consistently denying uh, ammunition and support to, to his men and then killing his men. Uh, the FSB, the, the Russian intelligence service, says that this is a coup. Numerous generals have called on his men directly not to obey these orders. But if this, if this is playing out the way it seems that it plays out, uh, it, it appears that these long brewing tensions are now turning into something of an, uh, of an insurrection. Now, among journalists, frankly, uh, we've been watching this, this tension as U.S. military officials have been watching and waiting for a moment like this, waiting for a, a moment when this this verbal tension, these accusations uh, that that Prigozhin has been leveling at the at the Kremlin, particularly at the defense minister, would boil over into something uh, like like direct armed conflict or or an assassination attempt against Prigozhin, but but escalating beyond words. Richard, uh, if somebody could see the behind the scenes here uh, this evening as this was unfolding and we were playing the game of where is Richard Engel because we need to talk to him about this. I'm glad we, we found you because uh, there is nobody who could provide that level of detail into what is a remarkably confusing situation that's unfolding right now on the ground in Russia. So we're grateful to you, sir. Thank you. Richard Engel is our chief foreign correspondent in Taipei right now. We've got more to come tonight. The shocking death of an Olympic athlete highlights major holes in America's healthcare system especially when it comes to the to pregnancy and black women. But Congresswoman Lauren Underwood of Illinois wants to do something about it. We're going to be talking to her coming up. Plus, as Republican presidential hopefuls celebrated their own action to curtail abortion rights in America, the real harm their policies are causing is becoming more and more evident every day. We'll have more on that next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. In July 2022, Christina Zilke and her husband were excited for their first pregnancy. 
But her doctor soon discovered that she was miscarrying. She agreed to wait for the pregnancy tissue to pass naturally. But during a trip to family to see family in Ohio, she began to experience heavy bleeding. She describes, quote, passing blood clots the size of golf balls. So she went to an emergency room in Painesville, Ohio. Medical staff there performed tests and found no fetal heartbeat, but never offered her an abortion known as a DNC for miscarriages. In fact, they discharged her as she was still filling up diapers of blood. She wrote, I disagree on her discharge paperwork. She went home. She passed out from blood loss. Her family called 911. She was called back to the ER after after, after, uh, being discharged. She needed an emergency DNC, and that happened because a 2019 trigger law that banned abortion after six weeks of pregnancy became law in Ohio hours after the U.S. Supreme Court issued the Dobbs decision last June. That law threatens health care providers who provide abortions after six weeks with potential prison time. That law is now temporarily blocked, but there are many more like it that are active in other states. Tomorrow is going to mark one year exactly since the Supreme Court ended Roe v. Wade, upending five decades of abortion rights. And this is what we are left with now. A flood of now daily horror stories that have become the lived realities of millions of people across this country. For 25 million people in this country, the Supreme Court's decision last year caused a seismic shift in health care access. 25 million people of childbearing age now live in states where abortion is either totally banned or just a few degrees shy of banned, just enough to make access that much harder, just enough to make it so that if and when the time comes when you or a loved one needs an abortion, you really might not be able to get it, not if your state says no. If you're one of the 25 million people in these states with abortion bans and restrictions, your ability to control and care for your own body, to keep yourself alive, is really in question, and it could get worse. Despite the fact that these abortion bans are deeply unpopular, despite the fact that new polling shows that nearly 80% of women between the ages of 18 to 49 disapprove of the Dobbs decision, including one-third of Republican women, despite the fact that over the past year since Dobbs, we have seen people die or nearly die because of abortion restrictions, setting aside all of the Dobbs decision's very real implications, political, economic, physical, life-altering, life-ending Republican lawmakers and presidential contenders are doubling down on their anti-abortion rhetoric today. At a Faith and Freedom Coalition event in Washington, D.C. today, 2024 presidential hopefuls voiced support for anti-abortion policies. Governor DeSantis patted himself on the back for quietly signing into law in April the state's new ban on abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. That is before most people know they are pregnant. That law is currently tied up in court battles, by the way, but that didn't stop DeSantis from applauding himself for a draconian job well done. Mike Pence took things a step farther at that Washington event today. He called on every Republican presidential candidate to make this pledge. I want to say from my heart, every Republican candidate for president should support a ban on abortion before 15 weeks as a minimum nationwide standard. The former vice president of the United States wants all competitors for the Republican nomination to promise to make it so that no one in this country, whether you are in a blue state like New York or California or a state as crimson red as Texas, no one would be able to get an abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy at a minimum. That's where we stand one year after Dobbs, with new medical horror stories emerging every day as Republican politicians threaten to make things worse today. 
After signing an executive order expanding access to birth control, President Biden reiterated his commitment to veto any 15-week abortion ban that Congress might pass in the future. He repeated that commitment during a White House event to mark the grim anniversary of the Dobbs decision. First Lady Jill Biden, First Gentleman Doug Emhoff, former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Vice President Kamala Harris and President Biden all addressed a crowd of reproductive rights organizers and advocates, and they promised to fight. Is a price to pay for insulting, insulting the women, for disrespecting women and their right to their health care. And there is a price to pay. And I don't say that as a threat. I say it as a prediction. As politicians and voters continue to fight to restore abortion rights, we're going to take a look at what some other lawmakers are doing to try to improve maternal uh, health. We'll stay. uh, We'll continue that conversation on the other side. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the speed. I'm thankful for the gift. But I mean, I feel like we all have a special gift, you know, that's how I look at it. That was track and field Olympian Tori Bowie in 2016, just one month before the games in Rio. Her gift that she was talking about, the speed she was talking about, not something many of us possess. Tori Bowie would go on to help the U.S. women's team win gold as the anchor in the sprint relay and silver in the 100-meter dash and bronze in the 200-meter dash in Rio that year. The following year, the 2017 World Championships in London, Bowie won gold in the women's 100-meter race, leaning in to, finish, to the finish line to clinch the victory. That win earned Bowie the title of world's fastest woman. Sadly, we will never get to see Tori Bowie's gift in action again. Last month, she was found dead in her home in Florida after deputies went to conduct a well-being check on her. Last week, we learned from an autopsy that Bowie, who was eight months pregnant, was in labor when she died. The cause was possible complications of respiratory distress and eclampsia. Eclampsia is the onset of seizures or a coma brought on by preeclampsia, a high blood pressure disorder that can develop during pregnancy. The complication is rare. The CDC estimates that it occurs in about 5 to 7% of pregnancies, but the rate of preeclampsia in black women is 60% higher than it is in white women. In fact, during a pregnancy in 2018, Bowie's teammate at the Rio Olympics, Allison Felix, also developed preeclampsia. These stories of deadly pregnancy complications are all too common for black women. The CDC also found that black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than are white women. This disparity even holds when researchers take into account underlying social and economic factors like education and income, which indicates that racism and discrimination actually do play a critical role in all this. One case that this scenario may bring to mind is that of the tennis star Serena Williams, who made headlines when she talked about how she nearly died after giving birth to her daughter. Hospital employees ignored her concerns when she told them she might be experiencing a pulmonary embolism because of her history of blood clots. It was only after she insisted on a CT scan that a blood clot was actually found in her lungs, a pulmonary embolism. That harrowing ordeal raised an important question. If one of the most visible and powerful black women in the world had to fight to get appropriate medical uh, attention during such a vulnerable moment, what might be happening to women whose names and faces are not as well known? So as we approach one year since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we're seeing more and more stories about how abortion laws are impacting the standard of care for pregnant people amid existing disparities in black maternal health care outcomes. 
Democratic Congresswoman Lauren Underwood has reintroduced her Momnibus Act to help give mothers more of a fighting chance. The Momnibus is made up of 13 individual bills that address the many factors that drive maternal mortality and disparity. Some of the investments that these bills will make include support for moms who struggle with maternal mental health conditions and substance use disorders, growing and diversifying the perinatal workforce so that all moms receive maternal health care and support from people they trust, and promoting innovative payment models to incentivize high-quality maternity care during and after pregnancy. And given the stark realities for women who may suffer pregnancy complications or be forced by law to carry pregnancies to term, this level of support is more vital than ever. Joining us now is the Democratic Congresswoman Lauren Underwood from Illinois. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us. It's good to see you tonight. Allie, thank you for having me. This is an issue that it's, 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 it's an entirely a real issue, but it's one that people who don't know much about it don't believe because this is America in 2023. And when you look at our maternal maternal uh, 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 maternal uh, mortality statistics and maternal health statistics, it does not hold up well to the rest of the developed world. There are countries in the non-developed world that are sometimes safer for you to be pregnant in than than in the developed world than in America. That's right. And, and tragic deaths like Tory Bowie's are far too common in this country. I want to start out by giving my deepest condolences to Tory's family, friends and teammates. But it feels like so often, almost daily, we hear the news of another mom who's lost her life to pregnancy-related complications. What we know from the data is that the overwhelming majority of these deaths, over 80 percent of these deaths, are preventable. And we know how to save their lives. We just have to choose policymakers have to choose to pass comprehensive legislation, including the Momnibus, in order to take action and save moms. Let's talk about um, what your likelihood and challenges are in getting the Momnibus bill passed, because it does seem like the most obvious thing in the world. I would imagine your challenges are people saying this isn't a priority, this isn't as important as it is, but it's kind of literally existential and one of the most important things that we can deal with in this country. You know what, Allie, among my colleagues, I don't hear that. What I often hear is, wow, I thought that we had we had handled this years ago. Right. I didn't know that this was still a, cha- a problem. And so they're really interested in hearing more and learning more about the solutions. And that's how we were able to pass the Protecting Moms Who Served Act, which is part of the Momnibus to support our veteran moms. It passed the House unanimously. So think about the range of topics that can get unanimous support, Democrats and Republicans coming together to solve these kinds of problems. That's how how we'll get the omnibus signed into law. Yeah, you have 181 co-sponsors, I believe. I mean, this is this is a broad bill. We're up in the 180s. Uh, we're gathering more support every day. Uh, there's bipartisan bills within the Momnibus. And then we also have uh, the bill that's been reintroduced in the Senate as well. So we are moving forward full steam. The CDC estimates that 80 percent of maternal deaths in this country are preventable. Right. Getting to zero right. is one thing, but we can actually get really close to that just by doing these things. It is How fast can we get there? If your bill gets passed and other things are done, it's not just going to be this bill. How fast can we get to the place where we lead the world in world in maternal health? Oh, this is a this is a challenge that we can begin tackling right now today. If these investments flooded into our communities, it would improve the health and well-being of all moms. Number one, whether you're old or young, whether you live in an urban or rural community, this is an issue that can help improve maternal health care for everyone while also saving lives of those who are most likely to die. And so we are so eager to get these investments 
into all of our communities as quickly as possible. We are looking for the next av available legislative uh, vehicle to attach the omnibus to, and that's why we're working so hard to get the bipartisan support to get it done. And I don't want to I don't want to compromise that, uh, but I do want to ask you if you can make any connection between what you are trying to achieve here and the fact that in the minds of many people, the last year has been a step back in 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 maternal mortality uh, battles because we have lost some health care. We've lost access to reproductive health care in a number of states. Well, yeah, without a doubt. You know, we are seeing in the year post-Dobbs uh, an increase in preventable maternal mortality. Uh, we know that that makes many individuals who espouse a pro-life belief or value system very uncomfortable with the idea of moms dying as a result of childbirth, and they are looking for a solution. And we are here to offer the Momnibus as the solution to address our nation's maternal health crisis. We have uh, funding in here that helps rural communities, suburban communities urban communities, right? We have bipartisan uh, solutions within the Momnibus. But what's more important is that these are evidence-based. So we looked at the data and the research, and we know what will work to save moms' lives. And that is exactly what's in the Momnibus. Let me ask you one thing. The study indicated that if you allow, you, you account for differences in uh, economics and, and education, Black women still die more frequently than white women do. Mm -hmm. How do you solve for that? What in your bill addresses that? And I know that's not for you to just solve in one bill, but what addresses that part? What does that tell you and how do you fix that? Well, part of it is just acknowledging that uh, there is systemic racism, and, and certainly within our healthcare system and in our public health system. And so we can help uh, change the way that providers are trained. Uh, we can help connect moms with the provider of their choice, because the data tells us that the outcomes are better uh, when there is a linguistic congruency or a cultural congruency. Uh, and so we want to make sure that that choice and provider is available to all moms across the country. If a mom today says that she wants a doula, in many places in this country, she can't get one. She can't get access to a lactation consultant. She can't see a midwife. She can't choose among OBs, right? And so that's that's a real problem in our country right now. And these kinds of solutions, investing in what we call the perinatal workforce, is how we start to overcome some of the racism and, and other issues, structural issues within our healthcare system. In a hyper-politicized environment, it is interesting to just see a bill that's just meant to make life better for people, to get us in America to a place where it is safe to get pregnant, it is safe to have a child, and if you cannot carry that child or choose not to, that's also safe. Thank you for the work that you're doing, and uh, continued good luck on this bill. Thank you very much. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood of Illinois. All right, we're going to be right back. One quick programming note, this week's Velshi Band Book Club feature is the award-winning Lawn Boy by Jonathan Evison. The semi-autobiographical coming-of-age story examines what it's like to be pushed to the margins because of your cultural heritage, sexual identity, and class status. Lawn Boy may sound familiar. One parent's condemnation of the book in the Leander Independent School District in Texas went viral, spurring a mass banning of the book in at least 35 different school districts across the United States. And while some districts later returned the book to the shelf, Lawn Boy still stands as one of America's most banned books to date. I'll talk to the author Jonathan Evison about his novel tomorrow for this week's meeting of the Velshi Band Book Club, which you can catch on my show tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC.
Don't miss it. And that does it for us.